As growers across the nation make plans for their seed corn purchases, understanding not only which hybrid is the best option for the farm, but also understanding how to best manage that hybrid is critical for maximizing the return on investment. Matt Scuffum, seed manager from Iowa, shares tips on some best practices for hybrids that you may choose for your 23 crop. Jody Lawrence joins us from Nashville for a commodity market update. Plus, infusing the agriculture industry with young talent is very important. The fruit and vegetable growers recognize this by creating their 40 and 40 initiative. Daniel Oman is a Helena crop advisor from Michigan, and she was recently selected for the 2022 class. She'll be joining us today and share some of the latest on the fruit and vegetable industry. Stay tuned for FieldLink. While Corn Harvest 22 is in full swing across most of the nation, now's a great time to start thinking about your seed plan for 2023. Joining us today from Des Moines, Iowa, is Matt Scuffum. Matt is a seed manager for the Northern Business Unit, which touches most of the Corn Belt in the United States. Matt, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Matt, uh, before we start diving into the, you know today's topic uh, here on FieldLink, let's talk to our listeners a little bit about you and how did you get involved in the seed industry? Yeah, so I grew up on a farm um, about two hours north of Des Moines, and and uh, we were farrow to finish, and and uh, I decided um, probably when I was six or seven that I probably didn't want to raise hogs the rest of my life, and so when I was uh, 17 years old, uh, we had a guy up the road that he sold seed and he drove in the yard one day and he figured I was big enough to pound posts. And so um, for next three, four years, I put up field signs. So I think the last year I did it, I put up about 2,000 field signs. And um, so that's what really kind of uh, got me into seed, had um, a really good opportunity to ride with a bunch of folks. Um, and anywhere from 15 to 20 of them each year. And we drove around, we talked to their customers, we found out where they planted what. And then um, I got to uh, crawl down through, I got to crawl down through the ditch. And and um, so um, that's kind of what got me going there. And uh, I didn't smell quite as bad when I got home at night. Awesome. And then you uh, attended uh, Iowa State University, is that correct? Yes, I uh, was there for four years. I uh, got a degree in agronomy um, and then um, worked in egg retail for about uh, seven or eight years. Uh, went to a uh, large national seed company uh, for about eight years. And then um, I've been with Helena now for about seven and a half. Well, Matt, you know, with today's uh, fast-paced advancements in genetics and the rapid evolving area of technology, it's sometimes easy for growers to get lost in the buzz of all the newness of whether it be traits or genetics or technology. There's one thing that will always stand the test of time, and that's best understanding how to maximize the return on investment for your seed that you plant. And one of the best ways to maximize that ROI is to understand how to best manage that hybrid. Matt, uh, what are some key areas that growers need to consider when managing a hybrid for the best return on investment. Yeah, so, I mean, we've joked for years that um, your yield potential, you've got the most potential when that corn seed is still in the bag. And then the minute or second it goes into the ground, um, you never want it to have a bad day from there. 
So, you know, um, when you look at yields 15 or 20 years ago, I still remember I did a yield check and it was like 170 and we were tickled pink. You know, I did a yield check a few days ago and it was uh, 271 and the grower was somewhat disappointed. He was hoping for three. And so, so much has changed. And you look at the technology in 2001, I still remember I was on a farm and the grower said, I'm not going to pay more than a hundred bucks for a bag of seed, you know, and today, um, you know, we obviously know what the costs are. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more opportunity there. Um, there's a lot more investment in fertility and equipment in time. Cost of money has gone up here in the past few months. And so you really want to make sure that, that when you decide to choose a corn hybrid, it's got the right fit. And is it going to work on your soil type? Is it going to work for how you plan to, um, for how you plan to farm that field? Is it no-till? Is it conventional till? Are you going to put a fungicide on? Um, do you have an opportunity to potentially side dress? So there's a lot of things that go into it. And that first decision that you decide to make and, you know, has all sorts of consequences as it kind of flows downstream. And so, you know, I've always said we need to place the hybrid by the field. You know, there's some people that come in and they're all excited. Like I heard hybrid A did really well. I've had three neighbors that said, wow, it yielded 250 bushel for them. And one of my first questions is, is okay, well, what field is it going to go on? How do they farm versus how do you farm? You know, and um, so it could be a corn on corn. It could be corn on bean. It, it, it could have maybe some poultry manure or the, or the neighbor down the road, he side dresses or he's maybe got starter on on their planner. And so there's just so many things that go into it. But at the end of the day, it's that initial investment. And then how do you, you get the most return? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Matt. And, you know, in my seed selling history, I guess really understanding the importance of genetics is is very critical. It's sometimes easy to get caught up in the technology that's inside that germplasm. But understanding the genetics, where that hybrid best fits is very important. Yeah, you're 100% correct, Bill. And, you know, um, you know, we were harvesting this weekend and, and it was kind of interesting. We had a hybrid that we knew when we planted it that its early season emergence wasn't exactly sparkly. You know, it was good, but we made sure that we put it on a field that, you know, we had the soil good and black. You know, we're like 20 miles south of the Minnesota line. Um, I joke all the time that sometimes there's snow in the ditches yet when we decide to plant. And so, you know, we made sure that that um, that we had that ground good and black so that it could warm up. We put a product in the planter box that um, would enhance early season root growth just because we knew that, you know, part part of the early season slowness that hybrid had was the fact that, you know, the is that the root system was a little bit slower. Um, so you really got to try to say, okay, 
it's got 250 bushel yield potential, but what can I do to make sure it has that? And same way, we've seen that some of these products in the past few years, um, you know, everyone used to put, you know, 200 pounds of N up front, or maybe it was um, more or less than that. But today we see a lot, a lot of these hybrids, they respond at V10, at V12, at R1, at R2. And so there again, we've got products on the home farm that we know um, where we've talked to our seedsmen. We've talked to them about, hey, what about the response to fertility, to end, to all those things? And they're like, look, um, here's a product that we know if you can go out there at, you know, VT, R1, and put a shot of N on it, um, that you're probably going to get a little bit more uh, for your, you know, you're going to get a, you're going to get a bigger bang for your buck there than if you were to wait and put it all on up front. So um, there's a lot of things there that talking to your seedsman or seeds person, I should say, and understanding their fit. And at Held and uh, our seed people, they do a really good job. We put together cards that say, look, early season root growth is great on this product, on on, but on you know C, D, and E, um, we probably need to put a starter. We need to put fast stand. We need to put things like that on it that will enhance that early season growth. Goes back to you got the potential in the bag and never let it have a bad day. So what are the things you can do there? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. Uh, our Helena sales reps are really trained in you know multiple different uh, hybrids and varieties. Um, and, and best understanding how to manage that, that, that crop, I think is the key. And, and certainly they have access to a wonderful portfolio to help support the genetic potential that you talk about, Matt, for that particular corn hybrid. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, there's a lot of folks, they wonder what we do, you know, all of a sudden it snows out or, or maybe it rains or, you know, it's not time to be out there spreading or scouting or soil testing and, you know, in those time frames, we're going to all sorts of, of agronomy sessions and supplier trading meetings and all those things. And, and so we put a lot of time into that because we want to make sure that um, it's not only your farm, but we really, we really feel it's like our farm as well. And um, I know when I was back in a sales role, um, I took great pride in the fact when that grower says, Matt, that was the best field of corn I've ever raised on that farm. And wow, I, I got another five bushel, I got another 10 bushel. And, and, you know, making sure you got the right germplasm, you got the right um, practices out there as far as what you're going to add to that seed throughout the year. So we spend a lot of time at that and we take a lot of pride in, in when our customers succeed, we really feel that we succeed as well. Matt, you bring up a great point. You know, after that, uh, I guess seed is ordered and, you know, on the books, uh, which, you know, growers certainly want to be talking to their Helena rep here anytime to start reserving those orders. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But after that process happens, that's really when the work begins in terms of 
putting a plan together to best manage that hybrid. And and you mentioned a couple of them. There's certainly a lot of tools out there uh, through our agrointelligence program, uh, as well as, you know, some unique products like Zypro and, and uh, uh, you mentioned Fastan as an opportunity to best manage those particular hybrids. Yeah. So um, as you go through the year, you know, um, you know, our suppliers, um, the bears, the Cortevas, they grew huge seed crops this year. Things probably got a little tight. They grew huge seed crops this year, you know, top, you know, like the top one in the last 15 or 20 years. So we feel really good about supply this year, but guess what? Someone's going to run out of something. They're not going to have your first choice somewhere, somehow, or they may have 50 units of it and you want 200 or you want 100. So it's critically important that when you place seed by the field, when you're trying to tailor that seed to the solutions for that farm, that field, that you get the products you want. And so uh, the, the sooner you can come into your held in a sales rep and have that conversation and start the process. And, um, you know, we call it seed first a lot because you pick the seed first and then you tailor everything else. And, and to your point, Bill, you know, um, in December and January and February, you make a lot of other decisions around what do I do on this farm now? I'm going to plant hybrid A here. I'm going to plant hybrid C there. You know, or I've got a drying tank here, or it's going to go, uh, or it's going to go to town there. Okay, so what do I need to do to um, to to get those seeds, those hybrids in the right fields, even for for some of the things come fall? It's just like my brother this morning. He texted me and goes, "Hey, the corn got wet," and I'm like, "Yeah, you're at the home place by the dryer." that's the late corn. I'm like, if you want to combine dry corn today, you need to go to farm B because you're going to haul that to town and it should probably be 17, 17 and a half percent. And, you know, you should be able to combine right through it. So there's a lot of decisions throughout the year that it's more than just, I'm going to plant hybrid A, B and C, but where are you going to plant it? What are the logistics come fall? What do I do to enhance root growth, to protect it from disease, to, um, to to ensure that it's got fertility throughout the year or does it need fertility throughout the year. And that's really one of the advantages uh, growers have when they're working with their Helena reps. You know, our Helena reps are trained to look at the whole plan, the whole program, uh, and, and, and walk through some of those scenarios that you just pointed out uh, uh, just a second ago with your brother. Yep. You know, kind of like I said before, you know, we spend a lot of time out there, you know, we've got opportunities to do soil sampling, to do tissue sampling, to look at your yield maps at the end of the year. And, and you know, again, we were going across the knoll this fall and and I got a call going, hey, this corn isn't too bad. It's usually in like not good here. And I laughed at my uncle and I said, well, remember, we variable rated that field and we only dropped about 22,000 seeds there. And we were planting 36, 37 down in kind of some of the good flat black dirt. And, um, you know, so just even decisions like that of looking at your yield maps. And, and we, you know, we did a variable rate on the P&K. Um, you know, we variable rated the seed and really tried to tailor 
um, that decision to get the best return on investment. We took seeds away from the top of the hill and we put them down on the good flat black dirt. The same way with fertility, the fertility was pretty high on the field or on the field as a whole, but up on the hill, it was really good because we'd only raised 70, 80 bushel corn up there. It was a little on, you know, it was kind of on the low side for what I would like down in the good flat black dirt because we were pulling 220, 230, 250 off of that. Wow. Well, Matt, there's certainly a, uh, no shortage in new technology around the corner for growers to consider. Uh, you know, what are some of the leading technologies that growers need to be aware of that might be yeah, upcoming for the next growing season? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk around short corn. Um, one of the big suppliers that we've got a, a really good relationship with, um, you know, they're talking a lot about their short corn. You know, there's some other folks that, you know, they've sold it, they've played with it, they've talked about it for probably 5, 10, 15 years. Um, but um, pretty much everyone out there, whether they're promoting it or not, they are looking at those opportunities. And um, a lot of that comes down to the ability to get in there potentially with a ground rig kind of throughout the year, um, you know, from what I know, there's a lot of people from probably all 48, 50 states that are here, but you get up in certain parts of the Midwest, they're putting up a bunch of windmills or they're putting up solar panels. And, and, you know, um, you know, we've got expansion of towns and cities and things like that. You know, we've got a farm that it's right next to a grocery store. Um, it's not a good farm to take a plane into. Um, the folks, when they're pushing their cart out, don't really appreciate a plane buzzing over top. So we've got to go in there. And if we want to put a fungicide on it, we got to go in there with a ground rig. And so you either pick a hybrid that you know has a really good disease package that you don't think you're going to need to go out there with, or I try and find a corn that I know we can get through. So there's a lot of exciting things there with the potential of short corn. Right now, it's it's they're kind of out there and they're picking the stuff that is short in the field. Over the next two, three, four years, um, I think they can get into maybe not necessarily the biotech, but they can get into the gene editing, the gene silenced hybrids. And I use some air quotes there that you can't see on a podcast. But um, there's a lot of potential there. And then when you get into that, you can get out there with a fertility plan later into the year and into that VT, into that R1, um, you can get a, you can get your fungicide on, you know, and some of these fields, they're kind of small. They're tough to get into with planes. they got trees around them. You know, there's some drone applicators, but um, they take a lot of time. They don't get across a lot of acres. And so um, I really think short corn could change some things. Um, you've also got um, your RNAI tech, tech that um, they're doing a lot of stuff with um, with um, your corn rootworms. Um, so um, Corteva's got a new trait that they'll be coming out with in the next year or two called Vorseed. You've got the SmartStacks Pro that came out from Bayer and, and the brands that have access to the Bayer traits. Um, they came out with a few hybrids this year. I think it's five or six across the Midwest. Um, and so there's a lot of exciting things there. Um, in both those 
cases they use gene silencing or editing, you know, um, so it doesn't necessarily have to go through all the approval processes. Certainly it goes through some, but it's it's not quite as many. And and so we're seeing a ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent death rate on the corn rootworm beetles with those new traits. And so, you know, we're pretty excited about that, what it can do for corn on corn. Today there's some places where um, they've kind of blown through the trade. We're still putting on, you know, we're still having to put on some sort of granular insecticide or some sort of liquid uh, insecticide with the starter. So there's a lot of things there that um, we're pretty excited about that, you know, we're just on the cusp of it for the 23 crop. There'll be, you know, a few bags here and there. Really come 24, 25, I think you're going to see a lot more things. And when you pay 200, 250, potentially 300 bucks for a bag of corn and you wonder, oh my gosh, where's this going to? Well, it went into the first BT trade. It went into Roundup Ready. It went into corn rootworm. And now we're going into, you know, version three, four, five of corn rootworm. So um, there's a lot of innovation out there. Um, you know, they throw out how many millions of dollars a day they spend um, because they know, again, um, you got you guys as as the folks that farm are looking for a return on your investment that if I spend $250 on a bag of seed today, um, I'm hoping it's paying for the next trait, the next technology, the next yield bump. Um, because 175 was good. Now 225 is good. You know, in another 5, 10, 15 years, it's going to be 250, 260, 270. Right. And, 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 you know, with all of that technology, you know, upcoming, you know, as you mentioned, Matt, in the next, well, this year, we're going to have some trials out there, some small quantities of some of these new uh, traits uh, as it relates around rootworm predominantly. But over the next few years, there's going to be a lot of technology evolving in the seed corn industry. And that's why it's really important to stay aligned with your Helena representative to know which hybrid and which trait may or may not fit your farm. Uh, to best optimize return on investment. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, things change. And, you know, we're not even going to talk about beans today, but, you know, beans have evolved so much. If you go back to 1980, um, the largest germplasm provider or providers were the university systems. They made up, and I'm going to get this wrong, guys and gals, but it was like 75 to 80% of the soybean germplasm came from the university system, you know, because you could save your seed. Um, when technology came in, all of a sudden you couldn't, you know, all of a sudden it was trademarked and patent protected and all those things. But you also look at what the yield was. I remember 40 bushel beans was pretty exciting. You know, today, if, you know, some folks aren't cutting 70 bushel, they're like, what the heck happened? Well, we've changed a lot on the fertility aspect. Uh, seed treatments, planting populations, you know, used to drill beans. And I call that a control spill is kind of what that used to be. And so a lot of things have changed there, you know. And just like on the corn planters of today, you know, you used to have chains and sprockets and things like that. And now a lot of these planters, they've got e. You know, they've got all sorts of e e electrical drives. You know, 
when they let me plan at home. I've got electrical tape. I've got a wire snippers. Um, I've got a can of the stuff you spray in your, you know, in the connection points. And, you know, you aren't out there with a wrench. You aren't out there with chain links and things like that. And, you know, you've got one, two, three. Heck, I think some people have 10 different monitors in their tractor that are telling them what they're supposed to plant where, what they actually are planting where. You know, there's some of these planters today they can, um, you know, you can potentially plant maybe two hybrids, three at a time. And, you know, we got to have hybrid A here. We have hybrid B there. You know, you got twin rows, you got 20 inch rows, you got, you know, you got all sorts of, you know, all sorts of configurations out there. And, and, you know, it can be a lot, you know, so, you know, you take on our family farm, my dad's 77, my uncle's 76, you know, and then you take my brother and I and, and um, you know, we're not quite that old, but, you know, we tend to get older every day and, and so much changes. And to have a held in a sales rep or a, or, or, or a team behind you from when you go into a location, you have the ops manager, you have the precision ag tech, you have, you got the salesperson, you got the, you know, you got a whole team there. And again, as we talked before, they spend the, you know, they spend a lot of time going to trainings and helping, and they go to all those things so, so that when they get back out to the farm, to the location that we can help our customers with all the change and and whatnot. Yeah, I think that's really important. And obviously all the training, but also all of the experiences of the ability of seeing multiple farms in multiple different situations. And, you know, in most cases, the best practices uh, float to the top. So uh, that's a really great point. And Matt, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's, it's uh, time for growers to reserve their orders. You know, any advice uh, as growers are starting to reserve their seed corn needs for 2023 with their Helena representative? Yeah. I, so the first thing they need to do is hopefully you've been in contact already. You know, there's starting to be some test plots out. You're starting to see what potentially works on your farm, what does not work, you know, to to see that, look, this is a really good corn-on-corn product or this really worked in maybe a no-till, reduced-till field. This really performed on field A, but it didn't on field B. Those are the conversations you really need to start to have. Um, on Saturday night, I jumped in the combine. They usually don't let me sit in there, but I jumped in real quick and I started to flip through what what kind of some of the yield maps look like and, and you know, tried to break it down by, okay, we got, you know, on the north side of the field, we had product A. On the south side, we had product C. You know, did they both perform? Can I see a line there? You know, and those are conversations that I'll have with with my Helena rep here probably in the next probably 10 days to probably two weeks, you know, of, of gosh, this really looked like it worked. Or, you know, we maybe put an extra, you know, we potentially put an extra passive N on here or we left the DEFCON smart boxes on here just to see if we did, you know, two rounds and we potentially had a Chrome or smart stacks and we still had the smart box system on with DEFCON. Um, did we get a yield bump there? Is there really a concern here? Do we need to go to Chrome? Do we need to go to SmartStacks Pro? Do 
we need to go divorcing, you know. So there's a lot of things there that um, sitting down with your Helena professional, looking at the yield maps, we can bring in soil types. We can bring in the fertility maps. All those things that we've helped you out with throughout the year. And I think the book I printed off a year ago was like probably 100, 120 pages. And my dad just looked at me and goes, what am I going to do with this? I said, well, your Helena sales rep is going to come out and I'll be here too. But we're going to come out, we're going to go through this and we're going to figure out, okay, did this work? Did that work? Do we have the right fertility rates? Did, you know, the, you know, we usually do two to three strip trials per year, whether it's a seeding rate, a fertility. Um, again, you know, potentially we leave the, you know, we, we, put insecticide on what I would call a triple stack corn, you know, that should have rootworm protection, but do, but do we have a concern there? So, you know, all those things, it takes a lot of time. And to your point, you're held in a sales rep, may have seen something on a neighbor's farm that really worked for them. And, you know, they don't need to bring up a name, but they can say, hey, by the way, down the road, here's some things that we think probably might work on your farm. And, and there's probably things they're going to see on your farm as well that they can use to grow their um, knowledge base, for lack of a better term, to help every, everyone out that they call on and support and do business with. And obviously, this is the time of year where uh, a lot of the basic suppliers have some of their best deals. Uh, and, and as you mentioned earlier, it's good to get your name and reserve those hybrids. Uh, there's a pretty good chance that you'll secure them. Uh, there's never 100% certainty, but now's the time to get uh, get in position, I guess, to get the best uh, financial opportunity for the year. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, seed is kind of one of those things you can't turn on a spigot and you can't necessarily make more. Some hybrids are going to throw more rounds than flats. Uh, depending on the year, you know, uh, you know, seed can get a little big, it can get a little small. Um, so, you know, some of those things aren't controllable, but if you've got, you know, your, you know, but if you've got a bag weight that you really like or you got a seed size that you, you know, that you would prefer, uh, the sooner you can get in um, to kind of get your uh, to get your reservation in place, for lack of a better term, um, the better chance that we have then, because we can go to our suppliers and say, "Look, Bill Jones wants this, Sam Smith wants that. So, can you get it on a truck? Can you get it here as soon as possible?" And and so, you know, the folks that wait until you know, mid-December, January, February, you're going to get seed. There's no if, and, or buts about that. But you may not get your first choice. Hopefully you get your second or third. Um, you may not get the seed size you want. Um, you may not get the bag weight that you want. But the sooner you can come in, you know, and get your name on the list. Um, yeah, definitely a best practice that's a really good thing for yourself, but it's a really good thing for us because we become, uh, we become a significantly more reliable supplier when we know exactly what our customer wants. That's great advice. Matt, I want to thank you for joining us here today on FieldLink and sharing some of your you know, valuable tips and how to manage hybrids for the best return on investment. Not a problem, Bill. Thanks for having me. 
Joining us now from Nashville is Jody Lawrence. Jody, there's an awful lot going around the world right now. Uh, the Mississippi River is definitely drying up and having a huge impact on commodity prices as well as fertilizer prices. Jody, what's the latest update from that part of the world? Well, Bill, great to be back. And yes, the Mississippi uh, River water levels are their lowest since the 2012 drought, which is hard to believe because everybody remembers just how severe that was over the entire Corn Belt and the entire Midwest. And for us to have gotten there this year with as many areas that had really, really good crops east of the Mississippi and in the Ohio River Valley, it's it's uh, hard to understand and just another challenge and another wrinkle in an already crazy year. And the problem is as the freight expense has been driven up through much higher barge rates because of their less draft capabilities being at, you know, cutting loads by a third or a half in some sections of the river, the barge freight rates have gone through the roof, which is causing transportation costs from the upper Mississippi as it works its way down past St. Louis and Memphis and eventually hopefully gets to New Orleans. Uh, just really, really high costs, uh, lower shipment amounts, and uh, that in combination with the dollar and the other things that the U.S. is facing right now, it, it, it is also having a negative impact on our ability to uh, export uh, th this year's big harvest that's going on right now. You know, Jody, I've heard some reports uh, along that lines as far as shipping costs that in some markets, uh, shipping, uh, for example, grain from Illinois down to Louisiana could actually cost more than shipping that grain from New Orleans to China. So that has a huge impact on uh, the actual commodity prices when we get into the global market. Uh, yeah, it's just it, it's just another gut punch for our export program that was uh, was struggling to begin with at the beginning of the year, and then to have this happen, which absolutely nobody has any control over. You know, we can always lower price and. But if there's no way to transport it, and you certainly can't just load up a semi and drive from St. Louis to New Orleans uh, and expect it to be cost effective. And then the other problem is going to translate without a really wet winter uh, about how everything comes back up the river when you're talking about fertilizer shipments and things that we're going to need that we're going to be working on in the prepay season here in just a little bit. So the, the winter-long problem now that harvest is past 50% in both corn and beans is certainly going to be getting plenty of subsoil moisture, rain, and the river levels back up so we can return to some sort of normal shipping capacity and logistic you know, schedule around the U.S., especially in the Corn Belt. You know, Jody, we talked a little bit about some global trade there. How is, uh, you know, some of the recent decisions with the Fed impacting, you know, I guess the appetite for some of our commodities globally? Well, the the Fed stance has not wavered, and last week's September uh, inflation numbers, the CPI index, was higher than expected and another record high, you know, in the last 40 years, which is going to keep them very much on the offensive 
of raising rates, and everyone is expecting another three-quarter of a point rate increase before we finish 2022 with only what, 10 weeks left in the year now, and then, depending on, on how upcoming monthly CPI reports come out, additional rate increases in 2023. And although the dollar has fallen, uh, you know, a percent or two from the, the most bullish highs uh, that happened about six weeks ago, it is still extraordinarily and historically high, which back to our example through this, if you're Mexico and every month you buy a million dollars worth of corn, the fact that the dollar has rallied over 20%, even if the price of that corn is not changed, they're paying $1.2 million for corn that last year was a million dollars just simply because of the currency valuation and the and the rise in the dollar. So that's going to become a long-term problem because the Federal Reserve seems uh, intent that they're going to raise rates until they get the inflation rate down to 2% a month. And for uh, comparison, the September number was over 8%. So you're talking about cutting 75% off something to get it to their target. And uh, so many things. It, 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 what they've been doing over the last six months has not worked, which makes you really concerned that this could have a much, much longer tail on a strong dollar. And if this goes into uh, deep into 23, the third and fourth quarter, uh, then our export program is really going to struggle moving forward. And we're going, it, it, it's just, it will have, unfortunately, it will have a, a long-term long term damage as Brazil and Argentina, Australia, and other world exporters of specific material are able to move in and take up our space and in, in Brazil's situation be able to continually expand acreage at the detriment of what we may be able to do. And at this point, with our decreased shipping capability because of the river and the high U.S. dollar to try to control inflation, there may be something for the next six to eight months that nobody in the ag industry has any control over at all, which is a very daunting thing to think about moving forward. Yeah, definitely some challenges there as it relates to, you know, the global economy, the, the dollar, as well as shipping. And, you know, speaking about some of the international markets, uh, there's definitely been, uh, you know, uh, some action down in South America with the weather. How's that going to impact uh, our markets, Jody? Well, one of the things that was supporting corn and why corn seemed to be cemented between 680 and $7 was the fact that Argentina was in the middle of what amounted to their 2012 drought. They did get some relief over the weekend, and their seasonal rain coverage is beginning to move in earlier than expected. So if Argentina, as uh, our, our main competition for corn exports in the world and South America's largest producer is able to get back on a normal weather schedule, that's one more thing that uh, it puts the markets on defensive, as well as the fact that most of the central and northern regions of Brazil have gotten off to a really good start 
this planting and early development season. So uh, at this point, looking at the forecasts that have changed over the last three to five days, we're in a situation where our main competition, their weather and their production are looking a lot better than they did 10, 14 days ago. Jody, let's jump on to another part around the world. Uh, you know, uh, always in the headlines, uh, you know, some of the uh, the still unrest in Ukraine uh, and, and dealing with Russia. Uh, what can growers expect uh, with that current situation? Well, the Russian situation is so unstable that you're at the risk of any headline. And what we saw a week ago was the attack on the their main supply bridge from Russia into Crimea where they were shipping supplies to get into eastern Ukraine, military su- supplies, and whether they, it was a terrorist attack or sponsored by the Ukrainian government, everything is going to determine how uh, much escalation there is by Russia uh, and how uh, well Ukraine is able to fight them off because with the uh, Black Sea Humanitarian Export Corridor uh, agreement ending November 17th, you're down to a time that Russia has to approve it for it to continue to go. So you're you're really at a, a real, you know, uh, tipping point uh, on what could be really bullish news if Russia shuts it down and the war escalates and Ukrainian exports dry up out of the market or uh, continued pressure on the market if Ukraine and Russia are able to continue to freely export uh, their wheat and whatever's left of their corn. Definitely a lot happening around the world, and it's all you know impacting American growers. Jody, any advice for growers right now uh, as we're wrapping, you know, like you mentioned, 50% of the crop for corn and soybeans are kind of wrapped up. I know the cotton crop is uh, really, really moving along, uh, if not pretty well wrapped up across most of the Delta. Uh, any advice as we, you know, move towards the middle to the end of October? Well, uh, looking at it, we advanced some sales on the, on the recent bullish USDA yield reports when they uh, surprisingly cut U.S. bean yield under 50 bushels an acre and brought corn down closer to 171 on a national yield and then some of the other international numbers uh, that have popped up. Uh, I, and what has happened in the market that... Uh, just over the past three or four weeks, and this is as much as the barge issue and the low Mississippi water levels, is that carry has been brought back into the market where the March 23 futures uh, are at 690 and they were level with December and if you and uh, six weeks ago, but now you've got an eight cent premium. It's not it's not a huge premium to motivate you to carry it, but if you look at your basis, into storing it until December or until 23, if you need to make 23 sales, you've got some uh, building interest that, you know, 15 cents in beans and uh, between uh, November and March, that in between basis levels and the futures carry on the board, there's a little bit better pricing opportunity to hold some grain now where there simply wasn't at the beginning of September. And that would be my advice. Uh, Keep close tabs on your local basis levels for all delivery months to see where you're being most rewarded 
uh, for using your bins. And of course, Jody, it wouldn't be a regular Field Link podcast if we got didn't get a little coaching on uh, you know the situation with energy. Uh, how about an energy update for this uh, this particular cast? Well, the interesting thing that's happened in it, uh, in the energy complex is uh, the the U.S. released more petroleum or more crude from the strategic reserve. Crude oil fell back down to eighty two to eighty four dollars a barrel, and then OPEC came in and cut a million dollars a. a or excuse me, a million barrels of production a day, and it ran back up to 90. And now we are we are back at about mid range of that at 85 and a half dollars a barrel. Uh, I still expect crude will go higher, but in this time, because of a lack of refining, transportation, and some other things, diesel is at its uh, the highest price that it's been over the last six weeks at $4.10, where just a month ago it was trading in the 315 to 325 range. So diesel has not uh, broken like crude oil has, mm-hmm. and that's, that's really where the problem was. So I hope that everybody took advantage of some of the lower prices when we talked about those earlier to top off your tanks and hedge some for the fall and winter because the diesel is separating itself uh, and diesel is trading at a level where you would expect crude oil to be $10 a barrel higher than it is. So right now it's really just about refining capacity. It's about use and it's about availability uh, of logistically being able to get the diesel around everywhere it needs to be. Great update today. Jody, I want to thank you for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Everybody be safe with the rest of Harvest. In an effort to recognize young people that are making bold moves in the fruit and vegetable industry, every year the fruit and vegetable growers recognize 40 individuals that are under 40 years old that are positively impacting this sector of the industry. With us today is Danielle Oman from Michigan. Danielle is a crop advisor and CCA with Helena. She's also a member of the 2022 class of 40 individuals that will be honored at the Great Lakes Vegetable and Farm Expo this year. Danielle, welcome to FieldLink. Hi, Bill. Hey, it's great to have you here today, Danielle. Um, Danielle, tell us a little bit about you. Um, where, where did you grow up and, uh, you know, how, how did you get involved in the industry? Well, Bill, I grew up on my family's fruit and vegetable farm in Michigan. Um, we grew a lot of asparagus as our main vegetable. Um, as kids, we were very involved on the farm from picking asparagus in the fields, running forklifts in the packing shed to thinning peaches or trimming Christmas trees. So we had quite the specialty crops on our farm. And after I graduated college with my bachelor's of science, I decided to come back home to my roots in the ag industry. Awesome. So you grew up on a farm in Michigan. And how many crops did you guys grow typically in a typical season uh, at your family farm in Michigan? Including row crops and fruit trees and different vegetables. Probably around 10 or more sometimes. Wow. So very diverse. Very diverse from fruit and veggies as well as row crops. That's excellent. Oh, well, tell us a little bit about your family uh, operation now. Uh, t- tell us about your farm and your family as well. Okay. Well, my family's farm still grows a lot of asparagus and zucchini. 
um, different fruits and grain. And then I married into another farm, a much larger operation that my husband is a part of. Um, They farm an abundant amount of carrots, many acres of asparagus, a lot of zucchini, string beans, peas, a lot of vegetables. Um, Most go to processors for frozen foods, canned foods, and some even on the fresh market side. Wow. And I think that's pretty unique, you know, from a vegetable standpoint, as well as fruit. In in your part of Michigan, uh, which would Help me out here. It's in the western part of Michigan. Is that correct? Yes. It's just south of Ludington and near Pentwater. So it's right in Hart, which is east of Pentwater. So we're very close to the lake shore, which makes it perfect for fruit crops, the rolling hills. Excellent. And and I think it's, uh, you know, California certainly is a huge uh, vegetable market, Florida as well. But Michigan, Michigan, uh, way up north, uh, y'all have Definitely a huge, I guess, garden basket, if you will, of vegetable crops as well as fruits. We do. We have quite the diversity of vegetables and fruit up there. So we're very fortunate to have those big gardens in our backyard. And most of the veggies that you all produce, um, t- walk us through a little bit uh, as far as processing. And is that are those crops predominantly uh, contracted with different suppliers that are distributed through the United States? Yes. Um, there are so many to name, but you just got to think of all the canned foods on your shelf, um, IQF frozen foods, like your Gordon foods, that type of bird's eye, microwavable frozen packets. But we also do a lot of fresh apples and fresh asparagus and fresh squashes and even all those applesauce pouches. Um, For baby food, we got some baby food processors in our area. So like I said, it's pretty endless in our world over there. (laughs) Well, definitely uh, a sector of the industry that's very exciting. And and all of us as consumers are certainly touching those those products probably on a day-to-day basis. Exactly, yes. Well, Danielle, tell us a little bit about your Helena journey. How did you get involved with Helena and what's your current role? Well, Currently, I'm going into my 10th year with Helena as a certified crop advisor. And it all started when I was a summer field scout, um, learning the integrated pest management and all the specialty crops in our area. And just gaining that experience in the field with farmers um, led me into the role with Helena as a crop consultant. Well, that's awesome. 10 years. Congratulations on your anniversary here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> tell, us, tell us a little bit about your day-to-day. You know, what do you do as a crop advisor for Helena in Michigan? Well, I can tell you working with so many different crops really makes every day different. Um, we start digging asparagus crowns in March, and we plant vegetables all the way through July, and then harvest can go up to almost December for carrots. So we're busy in the spring and summer and fall and one phone call can start with an asparagus herbicide recommendation and the next thing it could be pest management and apples. So we're always thinking every which way for fruit and vegetables and right now we're working on a lot of fall vegetables, fall burndowns and fruit. Um yeah, so it's very exciting. You're always on your toes. That's awesome. And, and okay, you referenced one crop that's really very unique. And I, I think our listeners would love to learn a little bit more about it because I know you have a lot of experience with asparagus. Can you kind of walk our listeners through 
how do you grow asparagus? It's a, it's a long process, and um, we start out by well, we are the asparagus capital, we should say, in Michigan. So we do have a lot of acres of asparagus. We start out by planting asparagus seed, and we take care of the seed bed, so we'd call it. And then in the spring, around March, we'll dig up the crown, which is the root. So you'll have roots, and then we'll put them in trenches and place them there, and then we will grow that field. So usually it's probably the second or third year you can start picking it, but it takes a few years before you can start picking asparagus. And then once you pick it many, many times during the season, you'll let it to grow to fern, and then you'll take care of the fern, keep insects, disease, everything out so that it's healthy for the next year. And it puts all its nutrients back down into the root system, and you start over every year. <laughs> well, it's quite a process to raise, you know, a crop of asparagus. A lot of a lot of hands are touching that particular crop. It, yes, and a lot of labor goes into asparagus um, from hand putting the crowns and placing them in the ground and then hand picked so it's all hand harvested danielle how do you incorporate today you know technologies such as some agri-intelligence platforms into your day-to-day business for eh, fruit and vegetable growers well we we've tried some new things um we've continued to incorporate agri-intelligence into the vegetable and fruit industry um, we've tried the drone imagery for apple bloom thinning. Um, year after year, we continue to take more tissue samples through extractor. Uh, that has helped us tremendously to see what the plant's capability can hold, improving soil management with tools like high ground. So um, extractor samples have really helped us complete our fertilizer program from planting to harvest. That's awesome. And, and obviously with this many crops that you're working with, being well-trained is absolutely important. How did you gain insight about these crops and really how has the CCA program supported your journey? Yeah, working with more than 20 crops out of our location, um, from apples to cherries, carrots, grain to peas, um, the CCA really just having the experience is really working alongside different vegetable and fruit growers in the fields, really focusing on crop responses with fertility and nutrient management programs. Um, yeah, science is always changing, and we know that. So it's it's experience really helped being in the field. Yeah, I bet, definitely. Well, tell us a little bit about some of the team at your branch and, and, and how do they support local growers, fruit and veggie growers there in Michigan? We have, so our branch manager, Alan Lound, and we have two crop consultants, Paul Lound and myself, and we have one agri-intelligence role from Austin Fecken, who does all soil sampling, does extractor samples, varus machine, anything soil related, Austin's got that covered. So we have a good team going on at Shelby, and we all have our hands in different crops throughout the season. So I definitely bet. So, so, you know, Danielle, clearly, you know, you grew up in the fruit and uh, veggie industry and I know your family is really huge in asparagus. Uh, what excites you about getting up every day and helping fruit and vegetable growers in this particular industry? You know, the fruit and vegetable industry really keeps you on your toes. The industry is always changing, whether it's new seed, 
varieties, new equipment, technology, um, always working with different pest management tools, learning about the newest advancements in farming practices, whether, like I said, it's different equipment, um, different ways to control pests. It's it's challenging sometimes, but that, that keeps it exciting. Well, you referenced challenges. What are some of the challenges that I guess growers in the fruit and veggie industry are facing today? One of our biggest challenges is probably labor um, for all crops that need to be handpicked, which is a lot of our vegetables and fruit. So labor is probably the number one challenge. Um, and we all know input costs of everything fuel, equipment, fertilizer, everything in the past year has increased. So that's been a big challenge this year. Um, It was just very important to educate growers this year on using fertilizer efficiency tools to help them with these rising costs. Yeah, definitely. You know, the two two themes, whether it's fruit and vegetable growers or row crop growers uh, in in Iowa or uh, cotton growers in Mississippi uh, or fruit and veggie growers in California, the labor side of things, definitely a challenge. And of course, uh, fertilizer prices. And, and it's sure exciting to know that we've got some tools that can, you know, help navigate some of those things uh, for our growers, especially on the fertility side. So Danielle, you know, some of the challenges that you've talked about is certainly the fertilizer costs for a lot of producers, uh, especially in the fruit and veggie industry. What are some solutions or maybe some products that uh, you're bringing to your customers in that market? Yeah, Helena has a lot to offer in that category. I think it's very important that we introduce to growers that we can help benefit them with fertilizer efficiency tools like using humic acid like resurge or hydrohume to help increase nutrient uptake for the plant, benefiting their soil health. Um, We have a lot of new exciting products coming down the pipeline. So it's just, we have a lot of tools in the toolbox at Helena. I think that's a great point. You know, Danielle, you talk about products like Resurge and Hydrohume, you know, they're definitely tools that are certainly proven, but are very, very unique uh, uh, across the industry and certainly helping growers, not just in the fruit and vegetable market, but across the entire industry. Yes, I, I agree. Well, Daniel, uh, we want to thank you and congratulate you uh, first for being the uh, selected for the 40 Under 40. How does it feel to be recognized as a leader in this industry? Well, I was a little surprised, but it's, I'm just very thankful and humbled by all the support from Helena and all the fruit and vegetable growers that I get to work with every day. It's truly just an honor to work with such great people in the ag industry. So I'm very thankful. Well, Daniel, uh, we appreciate everything that you do every day to not just help out Helena, but help out fruit and vegetable growers uh, across Michigan uh, to help them produce a more profitable crop that's really going to feed the world. Congratulations on being selected for uh, the 2022 class of 40 under 40. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on FieldLink. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media.